Hello, Dr. Modcast listeners. On today's episode, we talk about resilience. We go on a tangent about kids and technology usage, and Sonia brings us back on topic by teaching us about digital resilience. And they're like, oh my God, my heart rate went down. And I'm like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. I'm teaching you real shit here. It's called science. This is Dr. Modcast, real bombs talking about real science and real life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dr. MomCast. I am Dr. Marla Shapiro here with some of my favorite sports neuropsychology colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Wicklin. I'm Dr. Beth Piras. Dr. Summer Ott. I'm Dr. Sonia Mosh. And Dr. Lisa Nipolpaka. We are here to talk about kids, health, sports, safety, anything else that comes up. We are real science, real moms, real life. Our very own colleague and friend, Dr. Sonia Mosh, was featured in a Forbes article sharing pro hockey players' secrets to resilience. What the heck is resilience? Some people may think that if you go through a hard time or a, an adversity, that's a bad thing. But I'm wondering if when you have resilience, it's actually a positive thing. So when psychologists talk about resilience, what we're really interested in is when something adverse or negative happens in someone's life, how do they positively adapt to it? Resilience has two components, an adverse event or events and a positive adaptation to it. In other words, how do people bounce back from something negative or bounce forward is how I like to say it. I'm curious, I was talking with Lisa the other day about how do we work with our kids, especially after sporting events, and maybe the game didn't go so well, our child didn't think they performed as optimally as they should. Led me to think, is resilience learned or is it something that we can model for our children? Is it something we're hardwired like so much else? Is it nature or nurture? Those are really good questions. And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's false. <laughs> you know, doesn't it suck when people give you answers like that? You're like, just give me the definitive, you know? But actually what we think is happening from a lot of the behavioral genetic studies and resilience is that about half of the variability is associated with genetic factors, but that leaves half that is modifiable, right? By the environment. So that's where we can really tap into what, can we change or modify? How can we change our responses so that we can learn to become more resilient ourselves? And then our kiddos see that and then they watch it and they learn from it. I'm on the edge of my seat because I had a mom moment and it's a hundred percent what you're saying. My son did not make the high school hockey team. Oh, The very next day he had a hockey game with his rec team and it was 50-50. I'm biting my nails. Is that kid going to go out there and say, screw it. I don't care about hockey anymore. Or is yep. he going to go out? I had no idea. He went out there, four assists, a goal, best game <gasps> he's ever played. Oh, I was welling up with tears the entire time. I had chills. I had, Alyssa, I, was, I have goosebumps. I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. How can I help foster, facilitate, lift him up? I told him I was proud of him, but boy, I wasn't sure which way that was going. You're sweating bullets at the well, time. I was sweating bullets. Yeah. Our common bond is concussion management. I think we see that in our patients, right? We see those that they've never had a loss. They've never had to sit out of something or maybe be told no or restricted. And it's not just our children, but our patients as well. We are embarking on our first travel tournament for my older son's team. And we're working with an 0 and 8 season so far. And so I love your story, Alyssa, how he just bounced right back and worked on it. 
So we are like scraping the bottom of the barrel as bombs and doing all of our cheers and drinking all of our fireball in our pugs <laughs> in the stands, just trying to find any way to uh-huh. give our guys hope. So that's okay, your right. resilience. Fun fact, we're looking for sponsors. Hell, if we make some Red Bull and Fireball, <laughs> add coffee if you want to add some uppers with your downers. Sonia, do we exhibit better resilience as children or as adults? You'd like to think that with more experience, you have thicker skin and maybe you can withstand certain trauma or adversity. Yeah. All the parents that are listening, if you think back to daycare drop-offs and there are some kids in that room that are decompensating and crying in the corner and just really having a hard time with separation or whatever. And then there are kids who cry for a little bit and then they get up and start playing with stuff. And then you there's know, the so moms there's... who would decompensate <laughs> in the parking lot. Right. And then... My kiddos daycare had a little viewing room where neurotic parents could privately watch on video. So I'm going to sit here like a neurotic freak and watch for hours instead of going to work. So I guess what I'm saying is when kids are younger, that tendency to just want to jump up and bounce back and make the best of whatever situation they're in, that tends to be a little bit more driven just by their inherent personality traits. Do they tend to be a little more optimistic? Do they tend to be a little bit more extroverted? So extroverts who seek social engagement with others tend to be a little more resilient. When kids are really young, we see some of the more genetically driven resilience factors popping through. And as they hit those sensitive periods, adolescence, that's where a resilient mom like Alyssa can model, hey, you know what, hon? There are times that I didn't get the position I wanted or I didn't get some big promotion I wanted. And you know what? That actually turned out to be a blessing because here's how I worked with that. That's one of the things that we can do shift our own thinking about setbacks and look at those as blessings Love because that, every Sonia. time, Great. yeah, every I mean, time I- we have that setback or they have one, instead of reacting like, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry, that sucks for you, say, wow, this is a perfect opportunity to work on how do you shift? How do you change? How do you adapt? Because the whole umbrella term of resilience, it comes from physics, studying materials and how materials bend, like a rubber band bends and a tin can, if you put force on it, it smushes. We don't want to be smushy. We want to bend. How long do they get to grieve? Because we have to, as psychologists, we have to give them that moment and acknowledgement. Like it sucks. It's the worst. Yeah. How long do you let them sit in it? (laughs) <laughs> How long can the pity party be? Yeah, setbacks can suck. And it's okay to it's okay to sit in the suck. We got to sit in the suck and feel it because having that negative emotional experience of it is part of resilience building. Do I get to go to the pity party as a parent or do I sit passively yeah. in the background like a weird chaperone yeah. letting the party end and then wrap it up for Ooh, them? Good question. Yeah, so I think it's helpful to them to show that we empathize. I can see you're really sitting in the suck right now. And this feels really hard. And I get it. When we have kids that are experiencing something, that's a pretty dramatic thing. Alyssa, what you said, like a kid who's been working hard his whole life and doesn't make the varsity team, he's got to sit in the suck for a little bit. And I think as a parent, you sit behind him and put your arms on his shoulders. I feel you, buddy. It does suck. 
but joining the pity party and being like the guest of honor, yeah, that that probably reinforces the negativity victimhood. Yeah. And that's the opposite of resilience building. Resilience building is about we're going to feel how bad this is, but then we're going to flip it and we're going to move forward with it. I love though, Sonia, how you indicated sharing maybe your own experience with your child, because Mm -hmm. I think many times our children see us as we're doing things right. We've never made a mistake or they see us in our professional careers and they don't maybe know the journey that we've Mm -hmm. taken to get there. And the only B I ever made in grad school is a marriage and family counseling. So it still does bother me, but (laughs) I did make a B. How's your marriage summer? Debatable. Hey, I got an A and I'm divorced, so don't ask. I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> it's that. There's not. That's another episode. I think about COVID and emotional mm-hmm. fallout. It seemed that so many parents were joining in their kids' suffering and it was shared angst. And does that, in hindsight, make things worse? Yet at the same time, we want to be honest with our kids and share frustration if we feel it too. I think it's so interesting that you bring that up, Marla, because the amount of resilience work that's been published related to pandemic issues is staggering. People all over the world are trying to understand what did the pandemic do to our larger issues with resilience? As a community, did we get more resilient? And one of the things that people have really been looking at is screen time and social media use. Um, And there are some actually protective factors that have come out from that. And one of the things that is helpful is when People use social media for social connection. So there are pro-social reasons to be on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it is. So when you're saying when we were all on social media and commiserating, there was a sense of community and connectedness that actually was from a mental health perspective was a protective factor in our in our global resilience. So that was one of the kind of positives that did come out of this, the fact that all of us were on our computers at the biggest worldwide pity party that ever was. Yeah. And we invited everybody except people who had less access to technology and people who were disenfranchised. Those folks did have a hard, much harder time, especially with online learning and stuff. That's one of the other things that's interesting is this term that's come around in the last two years of digital resilience. So if you think about depending on the age of your kids, how long can they go without looking at their phone? Well, how long can we go? No, I know. So there's currently in the DSM-5 TR, which is our diagnostic manual that, that psychologists use, we do not have an official designation for smartphone addiction, but I have a feeling that it's trending towards that way. And there are groups that are working on criteria for that. And some of the things that we can help our kiddos with resilience is developing digital resilience and learning how to navigate adverse events that they experience through their digital platforms. Here's the most common thing in adolescence. Somebody's posting about a party and I wasn't there. And all of your hearts just sink right now as moms thinking about your kiddo, like not being invited to the party and then finding out about it. When we were that age, We didn't find out about it. You didn't know a party even had. So digital resilience is a different facet of resilience with our adolescents and young adults now that literally cannot survive a day without their phones and learning how to navigate when they experience something adverse, 
that causes a negative emotional reaction in them? How do we encourage them to navigate that, manage it? You've blown my mind here. I've worked with kids my whole life. And this notion of digital resilience, I'm like, why in the hell have I never thought of these two words together in a sentence or intentionally talked about it? That's a concept that we should all as moms or psychologists be familiar mm-hmm. and, just- and so as a parent, when you're saying the digital resilience, do we help them through the resilience by directing them to more positive digital media, sending mm-hmm. them cute little means and gifs of the little kitten hanging from the tree that says, hang in there? Or yeah. do we encourage them by saying, turn off your effing phone? So, you know, what's interesting is they've tried to study asking adolescents to limit their use just by 50%. And what the kids who were supposed to be in the control group, they actually, just by being in that study, actually ended up reducing their use by 10%. So even just putting it on their radar, hey, I noticed that you seem a little cranky when you had been on your phone that long, just putting it on their radar as an observation and encouraging them to watch how you manage your phone use. So we can teach them a lot more by showing than by telling. So if you're having dinner with your kid and your phone is right there and you can see you just got an alert, a really good modeling thing to do would be to turn your phone over or go put it in the other room. Just be like, you know what, honey, I'm totally interested in what you're saying. And I'm just going to take my phone over here so I can really focus. My son has this terrible habit. He watches his phone and walks. It this just drives me crazy. It's, it's a concussion waiting to happen. It's a concussion waiting to happen. I'm always mm-hmm. just a broken record. Do not watch your phone and walk. The other day he came through the room doing high knees. And I was watch, do not walk and watch your phone. Doing high knees, mom, doing high knees. There are really resilience boosting aspects of interacting with your digital platforms for our kiddos. So one of the things that's really helpful is there's even a scale that measures digital flourishing. How are you flourishing in the digital community? How is it helping you flourish or be resilient? And some of the things that kids get boosted up by is when they feel connected to other kids, okay? And when they have social comparisons to kids that they perceive are like them and who are putting authentic presentations of themselves out there, like not super duper filtered that they can relate to who are being real and who might put on a silly video and they're wearing a sweatshirt, no makeup or whatever. That actually is really boosting in terms of mood measures for kids. And they also really benefit from feeling like they can control their own use of their smartphone. So asking them, how do you feel about how much you use your phone? Do you wish sometimes you didn't feel like I got to look at it? And helping them learn to develop a little more insight. What is it about that I feel like I can't control that urge sometimes? And what am I doing or saying to myself when I do control it? Because they benefit hugely psychologically from feeling a sense of control. I was wondering, though, for the kids that don't have the real in-person friends and their only connections are online, is there some kind of tipping point where it could maybe not be so positive? Like, how does that play in a real friend? Yeah, that's a really good point, Marla. So when the people who are studying addiction, smartphone addiction or gaming addiction are working towards developing diagnostic criteria for that, they're applying some of the same rules that we apply to addiction to anything else. So are you consistently preoccupied with it? 
do you have an inability to control your urge to do it? Is it interfering with other things you should be doing, like homework or talking in person, and then you disengage from your friend to look at your phone and you're not sharing it with them? That has been proven to show a decrease in friendship satisfaction in that diet. So you've seen that, right? Where kids are like, they're having an in-person thing with somebody. And then one of them checks out and looks at their phone and they don't share it with the friend. That friend rates their friendship as lower in satisfaction. Well, I think we've all had those experiences too when we're at lunch with somebody. I find myself guilty of at times trying to answer the work text thinking I have to be urgent about it. And yeah. again, I'm not engaged in what's going on. And I think what we can help them understand is to Marla's point, if gaming is taking away from like, maybe they like to go play basketball. At or the it's court. all they, all they yeah. have. If, is it taking away from other in-person things where they could develop real connections? What they're calling now in the literature, problematic smartphone use or smartphone use disorder. So maladaptive behavior. Exactly. Like when I talk mm-hmm. to people about social connectedness, because we know mm-hmm. the more engaged you are with people, produces happy hormones, helps counter stress, et cetera. But kids will say, or parents say, but they have their online friends. Isn't that good mm-hmm. enough? Because they're not comfortable with people in their physical space. They take solace and are comforted by their online friends. Is that really just as good? Or is it not necessarily because... It's helping them avoid real-time engagement in 3D. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that we as parents, moms and dads, you know your kids better than any shrink is going to give you advice on it. But if that kid is exclusively focusing on a digital friendship group to the exclusion of an in-person group because they're avoiding the social anxiety of being with an in-person group, Then that's where helping them understand that when we're anxious about something, that's a really great opportunity. That's a gift because then we get to face something we're scared of and we get to conquer it. That's great. I feel like we could do an entire episode on social media and tech that this is giving shining a spotlight on. Oh my God, you guys, you can't even imagine how much research has been published on just in the last year. So talk about adverse circumstances, things like that. My daughter was graduating high school in this high-performing environment. These other kids would not get into their school of choice and be devastated. They had never experienced adversity, 8 to 17 and 18, and they were floored. And so I wonder about that too. Is it because life was too easy? Did people make things too nice? Were there one too many participation trophies? Yeah. Does it help to be exposed to people that have worse circumstances to help put things in perspective? What role does that play in building resilience? Great Great question, question. Marla. Yeah, Marla, the social support piece, experiencing positive emotions and finding meaning and purpose, like all of those things are resilience building strategies, finding meaning in things. Because I think sometimes parents are like, oh, I don't want to expose my kids to things that might be disturbing or upsetting. But my child has a bleeding disorder. I remember an appointment where the hematologist said to her, you've got a camp you can go to. And my daughter's like, but I'm not really sick. And she's hmm. to me, you have this chronic illness. And like, you know, it could kill you. But because all she'd ever been exposed to were cancers and brain tumors. So in comparison, she didn't think it was so bad. And so by 
exposing her to some people have it worse than you. Mm -hmm. Am I right that it seems to have helped her put things in perspective? Absolutely. Yep. Perspective taking for sure. And that also falls under the cognitive skills, like changing the way we think about things. What do you do about the kid you mentioned at the daycare? Because we all know that kid who is inherently cowering in the corner and just seems like genetically was not predisposed to be resilient. How do you foster Mm -hmm. resilience in that person? And are we going again or are we? Yeah, we're going. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that changed your answer. No. (laughs) And are those the same kids that are afraid to stay in their own beds when they wake up at night and parents say, oh, just stay in my bed because they're exhausted and it's just too Mm -hmm. much to put them back in bed, Mm -hmm. lock them together. Yeah, I think, Alyssa, you're describing like kids that are really high on trait anxiety and fearfulness and maybe lower on things like extroversion. And those tend to be kids that are more genetically predisposed to not being as resilient. I think one of the things that we're learning is that it really doesn't help to be punitive or give consequences or punishments for things like this, but that catch even the tiniest little blip of a behavior that's in the right direction and reinforce the hell out of it. So a tiny little, oh my gosh, that's so great. You stopped crying for a couple minutes. What did that feel like? Really trying to find little slices and nuggets of positive behavior and reinforce that. And then even though they're really little, ask them, how did that feel? Asking them to develop more self-reflection and awareness about that can be helpful. Even the sobbing kid in the corner can get more resilient. But when you talk about that, I wonder where's the line between anxious and absence of resilience? It's way more complicated than that. And I'm not saying that every child who's anxious, weak resilience, but there Mm -hmm. seems to be some overlap there. How do you disentangle? Say more about that. Like the child who's crying in the corner, fearful of going into daycare. There's a nervousness. Is it lack of resilience? Is it propensity to poor resilience? Is that the hand-wringing, anxious child? Are they mutually exclusive? Can you be anxious and resilient? Because as somebody who runs a little bit tense and as us high-achieving women tend to, we didn't get here by accident. We got here because we had a healthy level of anxiety that put us here. So can you be both? I think we're all the post-poster children of being simultaneously anxious and resilient because you're absolutely right. There's a certain level of anxiety that drives motivation and seeking experiences that are hard. And when people are driven to do stuff like that, they have to inherently face some of the things that they're anxious about. And then the anxiety in response to those stressors goes down and then resilience develops. So one of the things that I like to share with my patients and the athletes is if you're ever scared about what's right in front of you, just look behind you and look back to the hardest thing you've ever been through. That's a great t-shirt slogan too. Alyssa, you got that? (laughs) Say Say that again, Sonia, because that's so cool. If you're ever scared about what's right in front of you, just look right behind you. Scared to the front, look in the back. (laughs) You need to make it shorter. (laughs) You didn't shit your pants. (laughs) Exactly. If you didn't poop your pants, that's a win, people. If you look behind, you didn't poop your pants, you're going to move forward. This is called cognitive reappraisal. It's that easy. Facing anxiety is being resilient. 
right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we cannot become more resilient or increase our resilience muscles because it's really like a muscle. If you keep building it, working out in the gym, you're going to get bigger. If we don't have anything negative in our lives, we don't have an opportunity to get more resilient. You need to have those experiences to get stronger. Right. Have y'all heard of space training for parents? I'm not talking astronauts. So there's this researcher, Leibowitz at Yale, who, and I'm, forgive me, I can't remember the acronym, but it's space training. The idea is that training parents to help with their anxiety and their children. And the idea that as parents, we instinctively want to protect and nurture our kid. That is our instinct. So our kid is suffering. We want to protect them. And the idea is retraining our instinctive responses in order to allow them to stand on their own. And not that we should be punitive, but we want to teach them that they can handle things on their own. One thing that my husband and I agreed upon and did from a very early age is when the kids would fall down, they're toddlers, more so me than him, but my instinct was like, oh my gosh. And we've all seen it. And it plays out in slow Uh motion that they Uh fall down. They don't do a thing. Except look at us to see how we're reacting. And the second exactly. they see us going, my God. Yeah. And then we have a whole tantrum. So I yeah. had to turn my body away when they would fall down, even though it was mm-hmm. against my maternal instincts, mm-hmm. to run to them and scoop them up. I had to just really turn my body away and uh-huh. take the breath and go, oh gosh, oh gosh. And it did not take long. If they were hurt, they would come over to us. If they weren't hurt, they would get up and keep playing. They had that comfort of knowing we were there, but they were not going to get that instant coddling. We didn't know we were doing it, but we were very clearly building resilience. resilience. Yeah, totally. I heard Sonia say several resilience boosters, just to recap here. You mentioned the social network is important. I'm experiencing Mm -hmm. positive feelings. I think that's what you're doing, Lisa, with let me not show the negative emotion or feeling and model something different. Finding the purpose in hard things, like Marla said, so maybe showing your child some adverse situations. Change the way you think. I love that. But what I wanted to ask about is another booster is how do we regulate our emotions? And I just have such academia crush on these people at University of Wisconsin-Madison that are studying Buddhist monks. And they have been studying how physically resilient they are to physical pain and physical stimuli and psychological pain and psychological stimuli that are negative because of their body's ability to regulate their emotions. They have documented changes in connectivity in their brain scans. Being able to regulate your feelings and subsequently regulate your body is such a valuable skill for building resilience that we can start teaching it to kids and to ourselves really early. The simplest thing we can help them do is learn how to breathe. When you're scared, you hold your breath. The impulse to hold your breath in an anxiety-provoking situation is exactly the opposite of what you want to be doing to regulate your feelings and bring your emotional arousal down. So what you really need to be doing is a really long, slow inhale through the nose and a long, slow exhale through the mouth, counting to three that long. When we intentionally slow down our breath, what that does is it gives us a chance to regulate our body's heightened emotional arousal that we are experiencing due to some stressful situation we're in. So this really super simple technique I teach to my athletes, to my kid, to anybody else who will listen, the military leaders, is three breaths technique. So it's easy to remember the number three. You breathe in through the nose while you're counting to three. 
breathe out through the mouth while you're counting to three, and then you repeat it two more times. So you do that three times. And then in between each breath, I like them to try to think of really quick, short, encouraging mantra, something that they can say to themselves to reinforce the idea that they are in control of their emotions. I'll give you some examples from athletes. I had a goalie who his mantra between the three breaths was, nothing gets through my armor. He made that up. And when you ask someone, if you could slow down your breathing and help your mind get your body back in check, what do you want to say to yourself? Sometimes it's just breathe. Like when you're freaking the fuck out, it's just breathe. It's just basics. Just breathe. Did you guys ever use some of the <clears throat> feedback software that gives people the feedback on their breathing and encourages the pace breathing? I think that as athletes, especially and this adolescent young adult population, they're tied to their smartphones. They're also tied to their smartwatches. And so I find that they're, without me saying anything, they're often looking at their heart rate and they're like, oh my God, my heart rate went down. And I'm like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. I'm teaching you real shit here. It's called science. But I think the important thing for people to understand is like a panic attack when your sympathetic nervous system is getting so activated that you're just at the start of a panic attack. It is physiologically impossible to continue down that trajectory if you intentionally slow down your breathing. They make apps like they have the Calm app. And for littler kids, mm -hmm. you can find sports specific ones, ones where the soccer ball is bouncing on somebody's knee back and forth, mm -hmm. breathe when the soccer ball's up. And then out when it goes down. Teaching kids how to regulate their emotions by paying attention to their breath and that they might be holding their breath and intentionally slowing down the breath. But having a little mantra or something in there can be a distraction from something that is piquing their anxiety. Is it okay to point out to someone when they are or are not being resilient? Is that helpful to mm. say? I, in the I'm moment or afterwards? I'm just thinking when you see kids or adults or who are not being resilient, you want to be like, buck up. What's an in the moment strategy is mm. what I'm asking. I love that question. It's the car ride home <laughs> talk, right? Yeah. And sometimes they're open to receive it and other times not. I get that. But is, mm -hmm. it, is that helpful? Or can you simply say, do you want me to just listen or do you want to know what I think? I always do that, Marla. I always just try to feel it out. Do you want me to just be a listener or do you want some feedback? But I think one of the things that we could back on as parents is a technique from psychology, motivational interviewing, where you sort of ask questions that are open-ended, but are leading the individual to say, I would like to be able to be tougher in this situation. Your kid cries every time he strikes out oh playing my gosh, baseball. Thank you. Yes. Why okay. are we talking about my childhood? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were at parties all the time, Marla. So thank you, Lisa, for bringing that up as an example, because I'm feeling like a rotten mom. I've observed, you know, after every game, a child that shows great emotion and, cr and cries publicly. And so as a child and a former athlete, especially the coaches I had, you better not do that or there was some real consequences. And so mm -hmm. it's hard for me and I feel extremely uncomfortable. Maybe some other moms can relate. I want to just ignore the behavior because I don't want to keep reinforcing it that that's appropriate mm -hmm. each and every game, but I feel mm -hmm. real rotten that I'm doing it that way. So I would love to have some help. And I like what you said about, can we get tougher about this? Yeah. 
So first of all, at some ages, it's developmentally normal to cry. Thanks for that but reminder if, too. 40, you know, 40 something, right? 45. <laughs> you might want to think about that if that's your typical response. If your go-to is you need a box of Kleenex and a bottle of Chardonnay, you might want to think about it. Yeah. So think about at the developmental stage that the kid is in, is that a developmentally appropriate response? So if they're really little, maybe that is normal. And a lot of kids are not going to have the emotional bandwidth to be able to just deal with something really negative that happened during a game, bounce back quickly. If they're doing that in a situation where it's clearly developmentally not normal. Like what is I'm saying if your high schooler is doing that publicly, that's probably not going to bode well for their future in sports. Right. And it may have social implications for them. It may have implications for getting picked for further teams, et cetera. So those are behaviors that I think you do want to try to help them gain self-control. Say you're in a situation where there's tears and a lot of like catastrophic reaction about performance in a game, reflecting that it it really seems like you're struggling with this right now. Yeah, yeah, I really am. Would it be nice to be able to have a game like this and not feel as lousy as you do now? Yeah, but how do I do that? I guess we could think about, are there times in your life where you've gone through something really bad and you figured out how to pick yourself up and help them reflect back onto other examples in their own life? And if you if they cannot think of a single darn thing, that they were resilient about and that might happen, maybe use somebody that they admire as as a role model or even yourself. This is what our pros do so well. Most of the time, they have the memory of a goldfish because for Mm. these pro ball players, you strike out and look at a pro ball player's on-base stats. They're horrible when you look at the youth ones. So that's what I always try to show my kids. Look at this pro ball player. His on-base average is awful but uh-huh. really they screw up a play and they immediately forget about it and move on and so that's what i always try to emphasize yeah. for the kids too okay it's fine it sucked but we still have a whole game to play and it affects mm-hmm. our performance because then you see yes. them walking up with their little bat dragging behind them and their little head hump. they already know mm-hmm. the outcome even though mm-hmm. the outcome hasn't happened yet and that what our pros don't do anymore, which is why they're at the pro level. Yeah. So helping them understand, having them articulate that they would like to be tougher about it and having them think about other times in their life or other situations where they did show some resilience, if they can reflect on that. Or remember that game we watched this week, they were on a losing streak. Wow. What what do you think he said to himself to get him to that point where he could hit a home run that game? So guiding them down the path yeah, by asking leading questions to figure it out on their own. Not feeding them answers, helping them to discover answers. Gosh, Sonia, I really am going to take what you said and apply it um, to myself, first and foremost, and then also to my children and my family and patients. And so what are some takeaways? First of all, resilience isn't a black or white thing. You're born with it or you're not. It's on a continuum. And everybody has peaks and valleys in their own resilience. We can all work to improve our own resilience and there are concrete things we can do. When we talked about specific strategies, one of the strategies that we know from all the resilience literature is that having a positive emotion is beneficial, not just for that moment in time where you feel that positive emotion. So if you're watching, I'm not kidding you. I've actually prescribed this for my patients. I need you to watch something on Netflix that's hilarious for 15 to 20 minutes, or I need you to watch Laughing Babies on YouTube 
babies and puppies or puppies with bubbles. So boosting your positive emotions has beneficial effects for more than just that little duration of time that you're experiencing it. I like to have people think of when is the last time you actually really exhaled and let your shoulders down and just felt totally good and relaxed. What were you doing right before that? That's your booster. So there's something for everybody. We just have to figure out what that is. And if you can figure out in your kids, help them understand what really boosts their mood. Help them try to be detectives about their own mental health. So helping people discover what were they doing when they felt that Ah, that exhale moment. We're a small family in stature and my kids have t-shirts that say dynamite comes in small packages. It got me thinking they're going to be resilient in a situation where they can say to themselves, you know what, dynamite comes in small packages versus Mm -hmm. another situation where they may have that tool looking for areas where they are resilient and then how can we build on that in other areas absolutely kids might be resilient when they get a bad grade but not resilient with sports so help them reflect on yeah how did i get past that b that summer is still needing therapy about getting a b (laughs) in grad school we'll work offline about that summer we'll talk later help them understand like how did i get past that thing that really sucked for me and i did that we don't build resilience unless we're in the suck and that in itself builds resilience that we know okay what's the positive of being in the tubes it's that the iron is hot and it's time to strike Embrace yeah. terms of skill building. And I'm also thinking as moms, we're all trying to build up our kids here as we I hear this conversation and ways to help them and our patients, spouses, significant others. But sometimes we aren't working on ourselves and our resiliency. And so even just asking for help from other people is a sign mm-hmm. of resilience. And so I think moms need to dig deep too about what makes you mm-hmm. resilient. Where right. do we exhale? When right. is the last time all of you guys have just been like, oh, Oh, yeah, that was the second I saw your faces light up on camera. I agree. I just want to say, moms and dads, we're all just doing the best we can, aren't we, guys? Yeah, works in progress. Yep. Yeah, we have parenting fails and we are just learning every time. Every time we fit in the suck because we made a mistake with parenting or whatever, that's when we have to show our kids, okay, I'm working on my resilience. I'm sitting in the suck because I really screwed up, kiddo, and I'm sorry. Here's what I'm going to do different. Here's how I'm learning. Here's how I'm going to get stronger from this. This is awesome. Thank you. And thanks for the pep talk, too, for all of us. Yeah, we're all doing the best we can, guys. Real science, real moms, real life. Put a fork in it.